Hello once again, and uh, I'd like to start by talking about something that doesn't seem like it has anything to do with education, and that is wine. Now, I'm not a big wine drinker. Matter of fact, I don't really drink wine at all. But I am from a part of the United States where wine kind of holds sway over everything else. Wine and beer, that is. Uh, but wine has been the big uh, product of Oregon that's gotten famous throughout the rest of the world lately. And so I think about it every now and then. In particular, I think about one aspect of it. It is very, very easy to spend hundreds of dollars on a bottle of wine. But it's also very, very easy to spend just a few dollars on a bottle of wine. Many of us have heard of uh, two-buck chuck, that is to say, the type of wine that's sold at Trader Joe's in many places, which is actually considered to be a pretty decent wine, and yet it's very inexpensive. On the other hand, you could buy a Grand Cru from some other place, notice my terrible pronunciation there, sorry, uh, and you could quite easily spend several hundred dollars, even several thousand dollars, on that bottle. Uh, what exactly leads to that difference? Is there some huge difference in ingredients? Is there some difference in the processing? What exactly causes the difference in uh, price of those two things? Well, one of the surprising aspects of this is that the grapes that are used in Tubuk Chuck are the same grapes that are used in some of the greatest vintages in the world. They're the exact same grapes. It's just that uh, the people who make Tubuk Chuck don't buy the immediate, that is to say, the freshest of those grapes. Sometimes they do get the freshest of the grapes. Sometimes they just get the ones that other people weren't particularly interested that particular year. So the funny thing is, for many of these vintages, for many of these extremely expensive wines and these not-so-expensive wines, it's actually the same grapes that are going into them. And the funny thing is, the rest of it is pretty much the same too. They're not going through some strange different process. They're not going into some strange different bottle. They're not coming from some strange other place. In reality, what's happening is the grapes are being mashed up, they're left to ferment, and the resulting product is the wine. That's it. That's pretty much how you make wine. Regardless of whether or not you are a major producer, a chic little boutique uh, producer of wines, that's just pretty much how it works. And so there isn't really a lot of difference between the super expensive wine, and the very, very cheap wine. Now, one very interesting aspect of this comes from back in 2001, where a person named uh, Frédéric Brochet did a little study where he actually asked some of the best vintners and uh, sommeliers in the world to try to distinguish between red and white wine, and to see if uh, the way that he described a particular type of wine would have any influence on how people actually perceived its taste. Now, the funny thing about this is, what he did was, he took white wine and put red dye into it, and then asked these best of the best in terms of tasting wine what they thought of this red wine. And of course, all of them described it as a red wine, with all of the taste features that you would expect from red wine. Now, if you've ever had red wine before, and maybe you have, maybe you haven't, you'll know that it does not taste like white wine at all. So what exactly was going on here? What led these uh, elite of the elite to make this kind of terrible judgment of what should have been a pretty obvious different wine? This is kind of strange, but it's something that pops up all the time. As a matter of fact, in 1972, there was a very famous case where all of the California wines were tasted by the expert panels and found to be more flavorful than all of the French wines. This caused an uproar in the vintner community. 
And what was the result? Well, California wines started to get more famous, but French wines started to try to distinguish themselves a little bit more. They tried to distinguish themselves. What exactly does that mean? They're not using different grapes. They're not using different methods. How can they justify having higher prices? How can they justify a better reputation? How can they maintain their place in the wine world? What is the deal here? It's the same grapes. It's not anything scientific as far as where the taste comes from. What exactly are we doing here? How can we justify such huge variation when in the end, we're just mashing up some grapes? And that brings us to this week's name. Hi there. I'm Brennan D. Coster, PhD student in international education policy, and welcome to Names You Should Know in Education, a podcast dedicated to clearing up the perpetual problem of grad students in education, namely, that everyone expects you to already know who and what you don't know. Each episode focuses on the name of a person or an organization that has a particular importance in education, with a specific focus on comparative and international education. I'm going to try to keep it short, which means that we are only going to get to cover some very basic information here, but I will try to provide links to more readings so that you can go in more detail when you have a chance. Okay, enough preamble, let's get to it! This episode's name is... Bourdieu. Bourdieu is a name that you're going to need to know. That's just the way it goes. You need to know who Bourdieu was. The reason for this is, Bourdieu is one of the most cited authors in education, one of the most cited theorists in sociology in general as well. His ideas, things like field and habitus, cultural capital, other forms of capital, are all things that come into play in education constantly. So constantly, as a matter of fact, that I'm guessing you've probably already heard his name several times. If you don't know who he was, and you don't know his theories, I would suggest starting to do the reading right now. I'm going to provide some readings uh, in the description of this particular episode that will hopefully get you an idea of what we're talking about here. But first, a little bit of background, and why I was talking about French wine and grapes. Bourdieu actually is from France, well, rather was, because he died back in 2002. But he grew up in the southwest part of France, very close to Basque country in uh, Spain, actually. Uh, And the funny thing about this is, He didn't come from what you might expect, which would be a very wealthy family located in Paris, uh, educated at the absolute best schools, and on the track to be a world-class professor from the time he was a toddler. No. As a matter of fact, Bourdieu did not even grow up speaking French. He grew up in a place called Dengan, which is in the Atlantic Pyrenees region. Uh, His family actually spoke Bernese, which is a dialect of Gascon. This is most uh, closely related to Akaten, which is one of the original Romance languages noted in old writings. But it's also a dialect of the Romance languages, rather a language among the Romance languages, that is kind of viewed in a pejorative manner by most people in France. This dates back all the way to the start of the Académie Française and the formation of the Paris dialect as being the most prestigious dialect of French. This means something very important in the life of Bourdieu. He grew up in a situation where those around him, those that he felt closest to, spoke one particular language in a particular way. But as soon as he tried to enter the upper echelons of society, everybody started saying, oh, you've got a bad accent, you must be lower class, we don't want anything to do with you. And so from a very early age and throughout the rest of his life, he experienced linguistic discrimination. 
and this led to a lot of the formation of his ideas. Now this didn't really stop him, because from his early beginnings in Dengain, he went on to study at the Collège de Paris, and I think it was the Collège de Paris, might have been the Collège de France, I'm not entirely sure on that one, but the big, very important thing is he made it to the École Normale Supérieure, which is the premier leading institution in France. And he graduated from there and was able to find teaching positions very quickly thereafter. Now, this was at a time when there was a lot of trouble going on in Algeria. And when I say trouble, I mean France was desperately trying to hang on to its colony, and so they were recruiting soldiers to go and fight in the war, which, of course, Bourdieu uh, ended up having to do. What he did, though, was he spent a lot of time doing uh, anthropological study there, particularly on the Kabyle people. He actually stayed in Algeria after the war and continued fieldwork right there, something that would contribute a lot to his uh, outline of a theory of practice later on. These experiences, growing up in a working-class section of France where everybody spoke a language other than French, and going to Algeria, form the basis for a lot of his ideas that uh, surround the idea of distinction and symbols and how they relate to power in society. Now, that's the big thing about Bourdieu, power in society, and how power tries to perpetuate. How we try to use legitimation techniques to ensure that my power stays where it is, that I end up more powerful than you, and you end up less powerful than me. How we can justify saying, even though we're both people, and we both have two arms, two legs, etc., I'm still going to say I'm better than you. Now, how can I justify that? Well, I can justify it in a number of different ways. I can justify it based on my accent, based on the language that I speak. I can justify it based on the school that I went to. I can justify it based on the clothes that I wear. All of these things figure in to Bourdieu's work. Really, his work is about how power and class try to keep themselves where they are. It's important to note here, though, that this is trying. One of the big parts of Bourdieu's work is the fact that it was all about competition. He did not see what he was saying as purely structural, that it was purely deterministic. Some of his critics really did. They said, eh, you know, you're basically saying if you're born with an accent, you're not going to have the same outcomes as someone else. Well, in the aggregate, that might be true but for individuals, not necessarily. And the other thing that Bourdieu constantly said was that this is something that is ongoing. It's a fight that we're in. We are fighting to try to make these things work. So this is not to say that if you have a different accent, you are automatically going to be at a disadvantage forever. It means that you might be at a disadvantage, but you're still fighting to gain power and control, and you might be able to do it. Some of the most important ideas that come from Bourdieu's work as I've alluded to, one of the big ideas revolves around this idea of capital and the different forms of capital. Now, Bourdieu took a lot of this from Marx. That's uh, one of his big influences. The big thing that Bourdieu looked at was the fact that when we are talking about capital, that is, these factors of production that we can control in order to have some sort of power in the economy, normally we talk about things like printing presses or access to land um, or access to various other types of machinery. However, Bourdieu took that concept and extended it and started saying, well, 
we can think of culture as a type of capital too. We can conceive of cultural capital. And that goes into things like what I was saying before. Your accent would be an example of cultural capital. Your awareness of even how to cross a street would be an example of cultural capital. Whether or not you take a shower in the morning could be seen as a form of cultural capital. In particular, there's one type of cultural capital that he focused on a lot, which is institutionalized cultural capital. Institutionalized cultural capital includes things like school degrees, certifications, things that you can hang on the wall and thus justify to everybody looking that you really do belong in that managerial position. He also looked independently at linguistic capital. This of course would be another form of cultural capital, but he looked particularly at how that tends to serve as a justification for differentiating people into classes and different power structures. Another big idea that comes out of Bourdieu is that of habitus. Habitus is what he basically referred to as embodied culture. This really is the entire set of dispositions, beliefs, actions, gut-level reactions that you have being part of the class that you're from and being part of the culture that you're from. So, for example, if someone says, oh, look at that, everybody's here, every Tom, Dick, and well, if you're a native English speaker who is a bit older, you probably know that the expression is every Tom, Dick, and Harry. There's no reason for that. It doesn't serve any purpose other than to identify you as belonging as an in member of a particular group. And if you are a member of that group, it's an immediate gut-level reaction to say, oh yeah, every Tom, Dick, and Harry, please pass the salt and pepper. Well, of course. But why is that an of course right there? Do you always have to have salt and pepper? Not necessarily. This is something that is just an instinctual reaction based on the culture that you come from. There are examples of that in other cultures where if uh, you were to go there and say, oh, could you please say uh, rock, paper, scissors? Well, that's fine, but maybe if you go to another spot, it would be rock, scissors, paper, and you'd realize that, oh, that just sounds funny and wrong. I don't understand why they're saying it like that. That's an example of something that isn't really normative in any logical sense. It's just through usage and being a member of a particular group. That then is part of your habitus. But that extends to other areas too, like where you would choose to work, what kind of school you would choose to go to, whether or not you would even choose to go to school, whether or not you even see it as a choice. And finally, another very important concept from Bourdieu is that of field. A field is basically a social slash spatial area. So we can conceive of it as an actual physical space, or we can see, uh, see it as a symbolic place. And this is a place where people fight for resources. There's many different types. So imagine, if you will, a classroom where the professor says, I'm grading on a curve. Okay, now we're all fighting for that A plus right there. So that is something that we would have to consider a particular field. But that's just one classroom. It would be both a physical and a cultural space right there, a social space. We can think of that in a very small sense, like one classroom, but we could think of it in terms of an entire school too. Who's going to be ranked most highly in the school? Which program is going to have the most prestige out of all the programs in the school, etc. These are all examples of fields that people can participate in. Now, you're not only going to be in one field. Fields, of course, are going to be uh, hierarchical in Bourdieu's models, and you can be inside of multiple fields at the same time. The most important field, the biggest one that he considered, was that looking at power and control in general. That is to say, that of class and how we distribute resources. 
Those are some of the very important ideas that you can get from Bourdieu, many of which you will find in his book Distinction, which is available through Harvard University Press and many other sources, if you know what I mean. Okay, in terms of education, how does this apply to you? Well, hopefully it will be clear at this point. Going all the way back to Durkheim in the beginnings of sociology, education has always been seen as ceremony and a form of distinction. And going back pretty much all the way through human history, it's always been seen that the person who is educated the most, the smart person, is the one who is deserving of more resources. We can always justify giving that person more resources or power because that person is supposedly smarter than everybody else. How do we know that they're smarter? Well, that's pretty simple. See that degree that they've got on the wall right there? They went to school. See that certification they've got? See that special mark on them? That denotes that they are actually better than you and they deserve more. This all goes into Bourdieu's work. He provides us some of the tools to analyze exactly how we create these little symbolic distinctions that we use to justify having different types of power. So once again, consider that wine. Consider the fact that you might have the exact same grapes being used to make wine in two different places. They're exactly the same grapes. They're going through the exact same process. What's the difference and how do we justify having different prices there? Well, what's the label on the bottle say? And that's what I will leave you with today. A little bit of further reading, if you will, take a look at his book Distinction that I've mentioned several times. Also consider his book State Nobility. This is a very interesting and very accessible look at exactly how the upper classes and elite define themselves in France going back a very long time. There's a very short reading that uh, you can look at called The Forms of Capital. It's available on the internet quite easily, so if you just type in The Forms of Capital Bourdieu in Google, you should be able to find it. And finally, I'd recommend a book by him called Practical Reason. It's a set of shorter writings, uh, so you can kind of read it a bit at a time, but it introduces a lot of other ideas from his early and later work. And finally, if you feel like looking at how this gets embodied and put into practice, I'd recommend taking a listen to Ron Funch's most recent podcast with Nicole Byer. They go into a very interesting conversation about what it's like growing up in different communities and having different accents from those around you, and how that affects your perception of others and their perception of you. All right, and that's all for this time. Thank you so much for listening. All content here is created and produced by me, all mixing, all music, all everything else. I am solely responsible for it. If you have a question or comment about anything I've said here, please feel free to write to me at namesineducation at gmail.com. Once again, that's namesineducation at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Once again, my name is Brendan E. Coster. I'm wishing you good luck out there, and I hope to hear from you soon. See you next time.